Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season seven of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is episode 7-7, Tito and Yugoslavia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. As the Ottoman Empire decays, it begins to lose its grip on the Balkans. Several nationalist movements cause the Ottomans to lose Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro. Despite some friction, Ottoman Bosnian Muslims are still loyal to the empire. However, after the Congress of Berlin in 1878, Bosnia becomes part of Austria-Hungary. And with that, let's discuss Marshal Joseph Bronze Tito and the rise of Yugoslavia. Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs are similar ethnic groups. Nonetheless, there's a good deal of historical animosity between Serbs and Bosniaks and Serbs and Croats. In Episode 2, we discuss the origin of the animosity between Serbs and Bosniaks stemming from the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. During this battle, a Serbian alliance was defeated by the Ottomans. The Serbs, who already considered the Bosnians as heretical Christians, blamed them for abandoning the battlefield. When the Bosnians later embraced Islam, this increased the animosity between them. The Serbs now saw the Bosniaks as traitors who accepted the faith of foreign occupiers. The historical reasons for Serb-Croat animosity are more recent and primarily stem from the Nazi occupation of the Balkans during World War II. Marshal Tito Joseph Bronze Tito was born in 1892 to a Croat father and a Slovene mother in what is now Croatia. He joined the Austria-Hungary army and was captured by the Russians during World War I. While in a Russian POW camp, Tito was introduced to communism and eventually accepted this ideology. Tito was freed from prison when Russia left the war in 1917. But instead of returning home, he remained in Russia and joined the Red Army in its war against the White Army. By 1920, the Russian Civil War and World War I were both over. Tito returned to his home where Austria-Hungary had been broken up by the Entente powers. Tito's homeland of Croatia was now part of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. During the peace talks after World War I, the Entente powers wanted to create a state for all Slavic people. This led to the creation of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, but everyone just called it the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. As mentioned in the previous episode, Yugoslavia is a combination of two words, Yug meaning South, and Slaveni meaning Slavic. Tito joined the local Yugoslav Communist Party, which the kingdom promptly banned. Yugoslavia's Communist Party continued to operate in secrecy for several years, 
forging ties with the Soviet Union. During this period, Tito rose through the ranks of the Communist Party and became acquainted with powerful communist politicians in the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia was having a difficult time balancing the demands and ambitions of so many different ethnic groups. The Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was really made up of Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Bosnians, Albanians, Montenegrins, Macedonians, and Hungarians. The second king, Alexander I, was a Serb who tried to limit Croatian influence in the nation's politics. The Ustashi, a Croatian militant nationalist group, used this as an excuse to demand independence for Croatia. In 1934, the Ustashi assassinated King Alexander, further increasing the tension between Croats and Serbs. The following year, Tito moved to the Soviet Union to work more closely with the Bolsheviks. In 1936, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin ordered a purge of the Communist Party across Europe. Several leading members of the party were arrested and executed. Tito benefited from the leadership vacuum the purge created. He soon became the leader of Yugoslavia's Communist Party, the CBY. A few years later, Germany invaded Poland and World War II was underway. In 1941, Nazi Germany invaded Yugoslavia and created a fascist puppet state called the Independent State of Croatia. The Nazis allowed the Ustashi to administer Croatia. The Ustashi targeted Serbs, Jews, and Roma in a campaign many have considered genocide. The Ustashi killed hundreds of thousands of Serbs during this period, lasting from 1941 to 1945. They built 22 concentration camps within Croatia, two of them specifically for children. The Ustashi also adopted much of the Nazis' racial ideas. They considered Croats to be Germanic rather than Slavic. Therefore, according to this logic, they were superior to the Serbs who really were Slavic. The Ustashi did not target Bosnians or Muslims, however. Some of them believed the Bosnians were Turks. Others believed they were Muslim Croats. Whatever the case, the Ustashi did not consider them Slavic, hence the Bosniaks were generally left alone. There may have been a couple of other reasons for this lenient behavior towards the Bosnians. For one, there was Germany's previous alliance with the Ottomans during World War I. Even today, Germany and Turkey still enjoy very strong relations. And two, Germany has long had an admiration for Islam and Muslims. Germany admires Islam in the same way that France despises it. Whatever the reason, this preferential treatment increased the animosity between Serbs and Bosnians. There were several resistance groups in Yugoslavia fighting against the Ustashi and their fascist regime. Two of the most prominent groups were the Chetniks and Yugoslavia's Communist Party, the CBY. The Chetniks were a Serbian nationalist militant group that resisted the occupation and received support from the Allies. The CBY, who
who was also fighting the Nazis and the Ustashi, were at odds with the Chetniks whom they considered their rivals. Tito's CBY performed well against the Ustashi. This prompted the Allies to shift their support away from the Chetniks and towards the Communists. And by 1943, Tito and the CBY had conquered most of Bosnia from the Nazis and the Ustashi. The former Yugoslav government, which had previously banned the CBY, was living in exile during the Ustashi regime. Now, they had no choice but to work with Tito and the communists to free the country. As the tide of war turned and Germany began losing ground in Europe, Tito and the CBY continued to capture territory in Yugoslavia. Tito conquered Serbia in 1944 and the Ustashi regime collapsed the following year. By May 1945, Tito and the communists controlled the entire nation. As the communists took over, thousands of people were killed in violent reprisals. The Chetniks massacred hundreds of Croats and Bosnians in retaliation for the terror from the Ustashi regime. In November 1945, Tito was voted in as prime minister. He abolished the monarchy, exiled the king, and declared Yugoslavia a republic. The Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was made up of six federated states. The Socialist Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Socialist Republic of Croatia. The Socialist Republic of Macedonia. The Socialist Republic of Montenegro. The Socialist Republic of Slovenia. The Socialist Republic of Serbia. Serbia also included two autonomous provinces, the Socialist Autonomous Province of Kosovo, the Socialist Autonomous Province of Vojvodina. Once fully in power, Tito purged Yugoslavia of his rivals, thereby attaining full, dictatorial, autocratic control. He went on to nationalize much of the nation's industry and confiscated farmland for the state. However, when Tito attempted to extend his influence beyond Yugoslavia to Albania and Greece, he drew the wrath of Joseph Stalin. In 1948, Stalin ordered another purge, this time with the intention of getting rid of Tito. Somehow, Tito eluded Stalin's agents and survived the purge. Unable to get rid of him physically, Stalin attempted to isolate Tito within the Communist Party. He denounced Tito, expelled Yugoslavia's communists from Moscow, and cut off financial aid to Yugoslavia. Over the years, Stalin ordered at least 20 assassination attempts against Tito. Tito was not just sitting around waiting for Stalin to get lucky. His secret police violently rooted out Stalin's supporters and any other opposition in Yugoslavia. The violence finally ended when Stalin died in 1953. But the damage had already been done. Isolated from Moscow during his struggle with Stalin, Tito moved towards reconciliation with the West. As the Cold War settled in, Tito created his own brand of communism. He made sure to never fully align with either the Soviet Union or the United States. As he grew closer to the West, Tito relaxed some of the hardline communist policies in Yugoslavia. 
Yugoslavia was now a communist country with a surprising amount of freedom. This liberal brand of communism encouraged the West to support Tito with financial and military aid. This boosted Yugoslavia's economy above and beyond most communist nations. By the 1970s, much of the world perceived Yugoslavia as a model state. It was communist, but not a closed society. It was ethnically diverse, but still united. Tito was a dictator, but the country was relatively free. Tito led Yugoslavia to become a founding member of the Non-Aligned Movement. The members of the Non-Aligned Movement refused to take sides in the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. Tito also spearheaded an idea he called Active Non-Alignment, which meant looking for alternatives to choosing sides in the Cold War. Yugoslavia's Challenges During all this time, Tito held the nation together despite its many divisions. Most impressively, he kept all the different ethnic rivalries and nationalist ideas in check. Increased demands for less central government power in the 1960s led Tito to conduct another purge. He tried to reorganize the government to provide the various states in Yugoslavia with more autonomy. This attempt failed and it was only Tito's charisma and willpower that held the country together. He also made sure to limit Serbian nationalism, which he knew could potentially tear Yugoslavia apart. He did not even allow his own people, the Croats, to go but so far with their nationalism. The Croatian Spring of 1971 was a political conflict between Croatian conservatives and reformers. The reformers had several demands including more autonomy for the Socialist Republic of Croatia, less control from the central Yugoslav government, and greater expression of Croatian language and culture. Tito let the movement exist for a while but eventually decided to shut it down. Their nationalism had gone too far. Some of the movement's leaders were imprisoned while others were demoted or kicked out of the Communist Party. But before all this happened, many of the changes these Croatian activists demanded had been implemented. This would be critical 20 years later when Croatia prepared to secede from Yugoslavia. Despite its successes, Yugoslavia still had the seeds of anarchy in its composition and history. The multi-ethnic, multi-religious makeup of the country was the very thing that tore at the fabric of the state. Yugoslavia was created to unite all the Slavic people in the Balkans. The name of the country, Yugoslavia, was a reference to the southern Yugoslavs who are different from the Russian Slavs. The three major groups, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks, spoke variants of the same Serbo-Croatian language. However, Croats wrote in the Latin alphabet while the Serbs used Cyrillic. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the primary difference between these three groups was their religious persuasions. The Serbs were Orthodox Christians. The Croats were Roman Catholics. 
and the Bosniaks were Muslims. The other major ethnic groups in Yugoslavia included the Slovenians, who were also Roman Catholic, the Kosovars, non-Slavic Albanians who were mostly Muslim, Macedonians, and Montenegrins, both of whom are related to Serbs. Due to the nature of the communist system, most Yugoslavs, including Bosnians, were not very religious. Many were culturally connected to a religion, but were atheist in practice. Intermarriages between the ethnic groups was common and might have been encouraged by the state. Joseph Bronze Tito died in May 1980 at the age of 88 without naming a successor. The fragile unity he created in Yugoslavia began to fracture almost immediately. Yugoslavia's Government Structure During his 35-year reign, Joseph Tito had kept the ethnic tensions under control. As mentioned earlier, Yugoslavia was organized into six republics, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Slovenia, Montenegro, and Macedonia. There were also two autonomous provinces within Serbia, Kosovo and Vojvodina. Serbia was the largest and most populous of all the republics. In 1974, Yugoslavia changed its constitution to give Kosovo and Vojvodina more autonomy and independence. But they were not raised to the level of full republics. All of Yugoslavia's republics contained pockets of ethnic minorities, and some of these minorities were rather large. These ethnic minorities were usually more loyal to their ethnic group than they were to the republic they lived in or even to Yugoslavia. Each republic within Yugoslavia had its own parliament and political leaders, and each republic also chose federal representatives in a revolving central committee. Yugoslavia's 1974 constitution turned the country into a loose federation. Most federal institutions were weakened to the point of barely existing. The military was the only source of federal power. Any federal laws or decisions required unanimous approval from all six Yugoslav republics and the provinces of Kosovo and Vojvodina. The new constitution allowed Tito to remain president for life, but after his death, it mandated a new type of presidency consisting of eight members representing the six republics and two provinces, each with one vote. This complicated national structure contributed to Yugoslavia's inevitable demise. After Tito died, ethnic tensions grew, exacerbated by political and economic issues. These tensions created cracks in the nation's unity. The political leaders who followed Tito, rather than work to maintain that unity, worked to benefit their own ethnic groups. Some of them even began calling for the breakup of Yugoslavia. Kosovo, 1981 The first major issue took place in Kosovo in 1981. Kosovo was already an autonomous province of Serbia, but it wanted more independence and autonomy. Some Kosovars even wanted Kosovo to become a full republic. 
The ethnic Albanians of Kosovo wanted more freedom and recognition of their culture and the Albanian language. Kosovo was over 90% Muslim Albanian with a small Orthodox Serb minority. From the Serbian point of view, Kosovo was an important part of their history. Kosovo was the headquarters of the Serbian Orthodox Church. Kosovo was the center of the Serbian Empire from medieval times, which we discussed in episode 2 of this series. And Kosovo was the location of the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, where the Ottomans defeated the Serbian Empire. The Serbian government rejected Kosovo's demands, which led to riots and protests. The government responded with a brutal crackdown in Kosovo. The government's response only increased nationalistic fervor in Kosovo, both among the Albanians and the Serbs. The Sanu Memorandum In 1986, several Serbian intellectuals and academics working at the Serbian Academy of Sciences, or Sanu, published a report rewriting history. This report detailed Serbian complaints about Josip Tito and how the Serbs had been mistreated by the Yugoslav government. The Sanu Memorandum, as it came to be called, accused Tito of deliberately weakening the Serbs and limiting their political influence. As evidence, the report presented the 1974 constitution which increased Kosovo's autonomy from Serbia. The memorandum was leaked and the Yugoslav government denounced it. Even leading Serbian politicians like Slobodan Milosevic denounced the memorandum for inciting nationalism. But as the decade progressed, many of these same politicians would echo the claims made in the Sano Memorandum. Economic Problems After Tito's death in 1980, Yugoslavia's economy started to go bad and continued to worsen throughout the decade. While Tito was alive, Yugoslavia was one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. Its GDP was higher than most Eastern European countries. Yugoslavia accomplished this by being one of the few countries that traded with both sides during the Cold War. However, there were a few hints regarding Yugoslavia's potential economic vulnerability. During the 1970s, Yugoslavia had a difficult time coping with the Middle East oil embargoes. And Yugoslavia was also embroiled in a few trade disputes with other European nations. But things really started going bad in the 1980s. Interest rates had skyrocketed during the 70s. In response, Banks and other lending institutions demanded their biggest borrowers, like Yugoslavia, start paying back their debt. Furthermore, the malaise of the 1970s caused the world's economy to slow down, and Yugoslavia was no different. Yugoslavia tried to dig its way out of this mess by borrowing even more money, which only made things worse. So by the 1980s, Yugoslavia was in a deep recession. The nation had a difficult time repaying its debt to the International Monetary Fund and had its debt restructured in 1983 and again in 1984. Southern Yugoslavia, that is Kosovo and Macedonia, 
got hit worse than the rest of the nation as it was the least developed. The 1984 Winter Olympic Games, which were held in Sarajevo, covered up some of these issues. But in reality, Yugoslavia's leadership had no idea how to fix its economy. Things continued to worsen in the late 80s as the Cold War wound down. The Soviet Union started opening its economy, the Berlin Wall came down, and the two superpowers began working together to limit their nuclear weapons. With these changes underway, the United States no longer had to cater to neutral nations like Yugoslavia. As the world was changing, neither the Americans nor the Soviets needed Yugoslavia on their side. The IMF extended another relief package to Yugoslavia in 1989, but it came with very strict austerity measures. The Western world demanded Yugoslavia get its economy in order and figure out how to manage its debt. These austerity measures led to a decline in Yugoslavia's standard of living and decreased confidence in the federal government. The IMF's austerity measures were strict. In 1989, 248 companies in Yugoslavia either declared bankruptcy or were liquidated. And 89,400 workers were laid off. In 1990, another 900 companies closed down and over half a million workers lost their jobs. In less than two years, in a nation with a workforce of 2.7 million people, nearly 600,000 were suddenly out of work. Another half a million workers worked without pay for several months as businesses struggled to avoid bankruptcy. Labor strikes paralyzed the nation. Social programs collapsed. The working class blamed the rich for being greedy, and the rich blamed the workers for being lazy. When the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, the United States took off the kid gloves. The Soviet Union was gone, and the Cold War was over. The Americans took a hard stance against Yugoslavia, insisting they continue with the austerity programs if they wanted Western investment. It was during this period of economic upheaval that Slobodan Milosevic stepped onto the stage. Slobodan Milosevic, Part 1 In the late 1980s, the people in several communist nations began demanding more freedom. Different nations had different demands. In Yugoslavia, these demands translated to more autonomy and independence for its many ethnic groups. Such demands would have been crushed during the Tito years. But things were changing now. Such demands were also impractical. The individual Yugoslav states were not populated by individual ethnic groups. Croatia and Bosnia, for example, both contained large Serb minorities. In 1987, the Serb minority in Kosovo began protesting, demanding protection from the police force, which was mostly ethnic Albanian. Ivan Stambolic was president of the Serbian Republic in 1987. He sent the leader of Serbia's Communist Party, an old friend of his named Slobodan Milosevic, to meet with the Serbian activists in Kosovo. 
Stambolich forbade Milosevic from meeting with any nationalist groups or nationalist figures. His job was to investigate the activists' claims of police brutality. But Milosevic defied these orders. He met with Serbian nationalists, promised them government support, and called for a crackdown on the Kosovo Albanians. He gave a fiery speech in Kosovo, promising that no one would ever beat the Serbs again. Overnight, Milosevic became a hero. Nationalist rhetoric had been taboo, even dangerous, during the Tito years. For a Serbian politician to say things like this was bold and exciting. Meanwhile, President Ivan Stambolic was furious with Milosevic. He tried to discipline his old friend, but this only turned the Serbs against him. By the end of the year, Stambolic was out of office. Slobodan Milosevic used his grassroots popularity to reshape Serbia's politics. He purged the Communist Party, removing Stambolic's supporters and replacing them with his own. He sacked older politicians from the Tito era, and he placed key allies in important positions within the government. Little by little, Milosevic was increasing his power and influence in Serbia. And little by little, Serbian nationalism continued to rise. In the next episode, we will discuss the breakup of Yugoslavia. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-7. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf appointed Jazal ibn Sa'id to go after Shabib and the Khawarij. Jazal was very slow and deliberate, prompting Hajjaj to replace him with a more aggressive commander. This new commander attacked the Khawarij with insufficient troops and was promptly defeated and killed. Shabib then went on to lead a night attack on the city of Kufa itself. Angered by all this, Hajjaj sent thousands of soldiers to capture Shabib, but all to no avail. 
Shabib fled Kufa, then circled back around, preparing for another attack on the city. And so now, let's revisit Shabib in northern Iraq. Hajjaj received word that Shabib was nearing Nippur, which was about 55 miles east of Kufa. Hajjaj assumed Shabib would attack Madain since that was considered the gateway to Kufa, and so to prepare for this, he quickly dismissed the current governor of Madain and made a new man named Uthman ibn Qatan its new governor. When Shabib had launched his previous night attack on Kufa, this new governor of Madain, Uthman ibn Qatan, was one of the first to respond to Hajjaj's call to arms. Uthman ibn Qatan came from a long line of Umayyad supporters, and there are even some stories that suggest his father was briefly an Umayyad governor of Basra. Meanwhile, Al-Jazil ibn Sa'id, that was the previous commander who had been uh, very deliberate and slow and steady in his fight against Shabib and the Khawarij, Al-Jazil ibn Sa'id was in Madain recovering from his injuries that he, that he had sustained while fighting against Shabib. We discussed this in episode 1-5 of this series. Hajjaj also ordered a new commander to form a new army to go after Shabib. This new commander was named Abdurrahman ibn al-Ash'ath, and his army consisted of roughly 6,000 men. Abdurrahman ibn al-Ash'ath was a son of the chief of the Kinda clan, so he was also a bit of nobility. However, Abdurrahman had previously fought on the side of Ibn Zubair against the Azadika Khawarij many years earlier, but now he had come over to join the Umayyads. So Abdurrahman ibn al-Ashath, he led his force of 6,000 men to Madain, and while he was there, he visited both the new governor named Uthman ibn Qatan and al-Jazil, who was once again recuperating from his fighting against Shabib. Al-Jazil, when he met with Abdurrahman, he advised this new commander to adopt his steady and deliberate strategy against the Khawarij. He advised Abdurrahman to always dig a trench around his camp when they set up camp at night and also advised him never to divide up his forces in order to pursue Shabib because Shabib would always take advantage of this. Abdurrahman heeded Al-Jazil's advice and eventually he led his troops out of Madain and towards Shabib. As usual, when Shabib learned that the Umayyads were after him, he refused to directly fight them immediately because they were a much larger force. Shabib only had roughly 200 men, maybe a little less than that, and he was not going to attack this large force head on. Instead, he withdrew, staying just a few steps ahead of the Umayyads, hoping that whichever army was pursuing him would splinter off and send perhaps their cavalry or small force to chase after him, in which case he could defeat them and then use that as momentum against the larger force. Abdurrahman continued to pursue Shabib north towards Dakuka, which is about 100, 190 miles north of where modern Baghdad is today. <laughs> 